Was that in in that theory? Was that for Christians? Um, yeah. So what? That, so now this is uh, you know whether whether it's um I'll try to explain it faithfully and then you can see whether you think it's true or works or whatever. So the unit frame is a word from Charles Taylor and it, it's lit, it's kind of a metaphor. It's kind of a dead metaphor because we use frame. But if you think of a frame of a picture, there's there may or may not be all this stuff going on, like the picture may be bigger than the frame, but the culture, what he says, the culture frames everything that's happening in there. So when you go to your lab, no one wants to, the, your supervisor doesn't want to pray beforehand, uh, or just, just acknowledge the presence of God before we do this stuff or whatever, and he, he or she is not saying there's nothing out here, they're just saying let's frame it as if there's nothing out there, and we can all we can play more friendly together if we all agree that the frame is entirely imminent. And so, um, what Taylor says is that within the imminent frame, where all our activities, thought patterns, um, what Jamie Smith would call liturgical practices, like the way we shop and and sleep and rest and stuff like that, is framed imminently. And then he says you can have a closed or an open take on being in the imminent frame. So a closed take is to say, I agree with that frame, and that frame frames all of reality. Or, as everyone in this room would say, or most of us, I think all of us, um, I don't, I, I accept that I operate in that frame, but I, my, I think there's stuff on the other side of the way you framed, um, framed the, the, uh, the culture. And so... Um, Taylor would say um, there's no going back to that and we thought a bit about what that was like and there's no going back there, there or there that, that's the situation we operate in and he says now sometimes I feel like his solutions are not as good as his um, thing is, but he says that one of the problems of the of a, of a life that's imminently framed um, is that it finds it very hard to ground things like transcendent Meaning. So he says, why is it that probably everyone in this room has wondered whether everything means anything at all? And, you know, why life has a deficit of meaning in a way that 500 years ago had a surplus of meaning. Like, it meant too much. Like, everything meant something, whereas now nothing means anything. And, um, or things like um, the grounding of our ethical actions. It's very hard there to, uh, to give sufficient weight to ethics. Because in in an imminently framed universe, you can say I think I think altruism is good, but as um, another important thinker called uh, Alistair McIntyre says, if everything's framed in, 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 imminently by um, that is good, what you mean is hooray for that, like I'm pro that thing, and therefore it's hard to see that that ethics doesn't become coercive in the end, because if you're saying I emote positively towards this, and you say you should also emote positively towards this, because I emote positively towards this, then it, it is just coercion. You're just saying you should celebrate what I celebrate and condemn what I condemn. Whereas a outside the imminent frame, um, if you think so beyond the imminent frame, you've got a better you know, a better grounding. So Taylor would say the open take is a more coherent take because the stuff in the imminent frame that is very poorly under-explained apart from transcendence. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yes, and then yes. Um, so we have a different kind of question. Um, I find this really helpful. I think a lot of us 
Hello talk coming out of this as Christians and thinking about this and being like, yeah, the story that the Bible is telling is wrong and like this kind of stuff. Um, how do you have conversations that are meaningful with non-Christians and try and engage them in that kind of reflective, like their concerns for the story? So I feel like any time they're trying to, like, yeah, of course, like, it's, it's almost like a non-startup. Yes. Do you have any, like, thoughts on how Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think that you notice a lot of the, um, a lot of the most reflective stuff on, uh, on evangelism being written at the moment addresses exactly that, that question, because it's very, uh, it's very hard to go from, it's like, like, going like it's very hard to go, especially if you're in a bus ride, to have that person have their paradigm entirely shaken by the man. My humanity frame life is insufficiently grounded in these kind of theoretical structures of the transcendent. Um, and so um, a lot of people, like Tim Keller would be an obvious person who really, he's, Tim Keller is like, a little bit like Charles Taylor for dummies and for Protestants. Like it's Because um, Taylor's Catholic and a, not a particularly... Uh, pretty, a, a somewhat, somewhat casual Catholic, a, a little bit, a little bit um, small sport on his, in his Catholic theology, and but so you know often that's the thing that you that someone like Tim Keller would say that part of what we're doing in our moment is not going from zero to hero straight away. So here's the big circle, roughly Christian. Here's the small circle, born again, and you can go from there to there. You've got to move people almost through this transitional thing of. Uh, what Tim Keller will talk about, teaching people to doubt their doubts, um, to think that their, their doubts about Christianity themselves warrant some scepticism and some doubtability, and, um, and showing, moving people from a point where, if I cut that, is that going to be good? No. Um, that there's this transitional phase where someone has to go from thinking, my my imminently framed life is entirely plausible to self-explanatory. Two, oh, it, it's contingent and it has some gaps and it's got a story. You know, even the fact that it's got a story is like shakes the snow dome up a little bit. Um, and then, okay, and then segueing to San Chan from your beautiful city. Um, part of what San Chan says is, so you do this thought experiment. You say, what would it take for you to? believe something now that not only you don't believe but you've got no you don't even doubt i try to think of an example um so well i think sam chan's one is maybe maybe none of us here or only one or two of us would believe that our planet um has been visited by extraterrestrial life is that be true right so maybe maybe there's stuff out there but would think it probably hasn't been here and like how would they have done it and stuff how would you go, and I don't think any of us even lose sleep on that, or whatever, right? <laughs> or, um, you know how you know there's people in the, in, in the hospital in Jerusalem who are claiming to be Jesus, and wouldn't due diligence mean we have to go one by one and think, are you, are you, are you, and like, we don't, we don't do any due diligence, it's just like it's out of the frame at all. Um, and what Stan Chan says in his, his book and his thinking is that a thing that would shake you is to be part of a community where that was taken seriously. So he does a thought experiment to say, if someone said, oh, I believe that our planet's been visited by other aliens, they would, I wouldn't I'd sleep like a baby tonight. It's just not, not a problem. But if I meet some other people who, oh, I believe that as well, and I also believe that, and here's, and you can come to this thing, and my, this is, here's this coherent community that also believes that. It might not get you there. There's, there's potential for manipulation or whatever, but 
that would that would move it from undoubtable to corrigible to shake out the snow over think I've, I've kind of got to got to think about this so i think he, the thing is so what sam chan would say is let your community and my community mix um any opportunity that we have to have people in people from the world into our communities where those plausibility structures are intact is uh, is a really powerful powerful move yeah and the last one, we did, these are great, another Sam Chan one, is um, part of the, we didn't really talk about this, but especially from the Enlightenment, one of the big features of the West, and a very, a very unique feature of the West, is a, a strong division between facts and values, faith and reason, upstairs, downstairs, all that kind of thing. And, um, and that kind of almost works out geographically. So, for example, it's generally considered bad form in our culture um, to, um, to speak about religious matters in a workplace environment, but kind of acceptable at a, in a home environment. And that's a feature of our culture that I think is actually slightly deforming as to what the gospel is and the kind of truth the gospel expresses. But it is a cultural truth that sharing, sharing what we believe in the context of a home is, is acceptable in a way that a workplace often isn't. So I think um, maybe strategically there we could... Uh, acknowledge that truth as a truth of our culture and think my, my job here, part of my work is to make sure that you come into those domestic spaces which our culture has nominated as, as the acceptable space for religious discourse. Which is really, you know, if you go to, um, you know, get into a, a taxi in Jakarta and you're like, hey, how you doing? What's your name? And what religion are you? Like, oh, like as a Westerner, you're like, man, where's this going? But it's just like, why would I not want to know your religion? And... Um, or I've been talking to someone in Thailand, I used to do stuff in Thailand uh, for a while, and uh, this guy said, you know, in Thailand you say that you're a pastor, and even though it's a Buddhist country, you go up in the estimation of the people you're talking to, and you're more trustworthy, even though you're the wrong religion, but at least you're religious, which has got to be better than not. And he said, I thought this is really insightful, he said, coming to Australia feels like walking into a family home just after there's been a fight, but you don't quite understand it. <laughs> because you mentioned religion, and he said, everyone's like, you feel like you've said something that you missed a fight, which you sort of did about somewhere between here and there. Yeah, it's great insight, I think. Into the thing. So I don't know what, what did I do wrong? Like, I just wanted to know what religion you were, which is like, and um, anyway, there we go, so I'm talking quite too much. So, uh, and then, what? Yeah, my question is about how evangelicalism as a movement fits into the counter story being told about how we became secular. So it seems like evangelicalism as a movement, uh, in, in lots of ways, was involved in kind of demystifying the world and God's role in it and kind of understanding it more precisely. And it was kind of already after things had started to become more secular. Mm. What's your take on that? Is that a it was evangelicalism kind of part of that whole turn towards secularization, or are we, are we kind of did we come along with it? Did we cause it? What, what's the deal? Yeah, so well, I well out of my kind of expertise and like knowledge base, but that hasn't stopped me before. So <laughs> no, um, I think two things that you can say with some confidence is that uh, um, so uh, evangelicalism. Uh, does have within it something that 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 emerges strongly across this period and maybe becomes kind of an expressive individualism here, which is it's very dis 
decision oriented, right? So for really good reasons, evangelicalism uh, always wants to ask the question, um, do you know the Lord? And often you ask that question, you say, oh yeah, I'm pretty sure we were baptised. And evangelicals just want to push through and say, yeah, I didn't ask whether you were baptised. I want to know, do you know the Lord? And, and they can say, well, I do go to church. I'm pretty sure I had this uncle who was a bishop and stuff, and we want to push forward on that. Mm-hmm. Do you know the Lord? Which I think is a, a faithful rendition of this. That, <laughs> um, and in some ways reflects those more ancient instincts where, where you couldn't, like the Bible in a sense, doesn't, the New Testament doesn't very directly address the situation in which Christianity takes responsibility for all cultural institutions, where it does have a whole ton to say about what to do when you don't have almost any responsibility for anything. Um, but but I, think, I think it would be fair to say that that, that decision, decisionism doesn't just fall out of the clear blue sky and comes into a part of our history in the West or in Western influence cultures where your conscious choice of a thing uh, becomes increasingly more important as to whether that thing is meaningful to you. And then, then I think in the, what Charles Taylor would say in the 60s, that really turns up to 11, like in Spinal Tap. Um, the, that, that almost nothing is of any value unless you've constantly chosen it. And in fact, the conscious choice of anything bestows meaning on it independent of the good of the thing in itself. So um, I, I hope this isn't like um, in, uh, an insensitive example, but um, David Bentley Hart, he's orthodox theologian, talks about how when he was teaching at um, Virginia Tech, I think. Anyway, he's teaching somewhere in Virginia and uh, a, a young man in his 20s t- takes his own life and on, on campus. And he said the amount of times that the ethical discourse went to, as much as they realised that, at least he chose that. That's, that was his choice. And it was, and by the time you get here, it, almost anything can be baptised by the fact that you were volitionally involved in it, that you, you made that decision. Um, which partly means that we've given up, we've given up thinking there are things out there to which we owe something independent of its value to me, so that um, that there's a, there's a reality in front of me that I that, that draws out of me certain duties and allegiances um, because everything is chosen rightly. Talk about this after totally lost my evangelism. Oh, evangelicalism. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe I mean maybe you can now the argument that 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 is that going to seed. Yeah. The other thing which I think people there's kind of a folk version of the Enlightenment that doesn't work which is that the enlightenment here, that the enlightenment is all like egghead, like the beginning of kind of AI of like thing. And I think Immanuel Kant is a little bit like that. But the enlightenment is also Hume, which is like entirely driven by, by um, emotion and, and sentiment and fellow feeling and stuff like that. And evangelicalism was born out of high emotion. Like part of evangelical piety was that you need to know and love the Lord and love him dearly and have an affection toward God and so on. So again, I think that's not, that's not so much the evangelicalism pushing back on the Enlightenment as one of the proper streams of the rebirth of, uh, of a, an owning of your affections and allowing your affections to um, affect your relationship with the Lord and with each other.
Did you have something else? Maybe is this one of those questions where you know the answer and you're <laughs> no, making sure there was enough string to. <laughs> 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 cool. All right. Wow, one or two. Oh. We're done. Excellent. Now my assumption is that it's the afternoon. We just had lunch. So this is the time to go really intense and um, <laughs> deliver the heavy material after mucking around this morning. Um, Cool. Now, what I want to do is slightly come at our, come at our topic from, a, from another angle and think about... So we talk, thought specifically about the dynamics of secular culture. And I want to think with you and do a bit of Bible teaching uh, about culture in general and just what we mean by culture uh, in two ways, both the, the culture that we find ourselves in, um, which we call secular culture, and the process of making uh, culture, which is what I think we're doing as researchers, academics, postgraduates, uh, making culture. So when I use the word culture in that form, I don't mean what happens at the opera house or at the uh, at Angel Place. So that's high culture, and that is that is a thing that people create. Um, but I'm using culture in the broader sense of what uh, well, what humans make of the world. Um, so uh, what culture isn't is our biology. So in as much as we share biology with the animals, that's not culture. And individuality is not culture. If there's anything that's completely unique to you, um, then that's gorgeous and you're God's um, snowflake and like um, precious unique gifts to the world. But that's not culture. Um, so biology is not culture. Uh, completely unique individuality is not culture. And everything else that humans do is, uh, is culture. So for example, um, going to the toilet is not culture. But the fact that we call it going to the toilet is culture. <laughs> the fact that there's this whole highly elaborate set of euphemisms about that activity and what you can and can't mention about what happened in there and um, <laughs> the fact that that's not, that's not the same if you go to Arnhem Land or if you go to Singapore or that, that, that elaborate set of things is, uh, is culture. And if you've got a completely unique thought, which is highly unlikely, um, like I said, just not you, but humans. Um, but how a culture responds to unique thoughts is very, a, a very indicative thing of culture. Whether a culture celebrates what we share, aka most cultures, or what sets one person apart from another, Western culture, um, those are real features of culture. So I want to think about culture and, um, and the activity that you guys are involved in in research and teaching and so on. Uh, one of the ways, a very famous way that this was framed in the 1950s was by a guy called Richard Neaver, who put out a book called Christ and Culture, and he put these five uh, kind of stances towards culture. This is, um, I've heard these before. He said that Christians historically have taken one of five stances, which is Christ against culture, where, uh, where loyalty to Jesus stands you in opposition to culture, Christ of culture, where Christ arises from within a culture. He's a culture's best thoughts and best hopes. Uh, Christ over culture, where Christians take responsibility for an entire culture. Christ and culture in paradox, where there's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdoms of this world and they exist in this kind of weird tension. And then Christ the transformer of culture to say that uh, what Christ is doing and what Christians should do is transform a culture uh, slowly and patiently until it becomes uh, conforms to the will of, uh, of God. Now, that's a great and helpful book in many ways. We might talk about how that framing works. Uh, one of the problems with it is it gives the impression is that, is that culture, there's a discrete thing called culture here, and then there's Christ or Christians here, and we're working out what to do with it, um, which is uh, immediately falls apart because, of course, we are culture-generating people ourselves. 
And so um, famously, Leo Tolstoy uh, is the example of Christ against culture. And so Leo Tolstoy uh, uh, disavows all his novels, disavows uh, high culture, disavows um, Russian society and goes and lives on a, on a farm and, and stuff. But he doesn't go and eat grass. They go and form a counterculture. It, they they go and they still speak Russian. They still, um, you know, that, that culture is not something that we get to look at objectively, but we all participate in it um, and and are part of it. So another way to break it down is to think about uh, culture and making culture. This is what um, uh, Andy Crouch uh, does. He says there's been four in the recent history of the way Christians and evangelicals in particular have related to culture. He says there's these uh, four phases. So your, my, my grandparents, so maybe that's your great-grandparents, the lots of you, um, the typical stance of evangelicals was to condemn culture. So you, you stood aside from the wider culture and condemned the drinking and the dancing and the smoking and, uh, and didn't go to theatre. So someone like um, John Stott, who becomes a Christian in 19, late 1930s, uh, immediately and kind of obviously stopped going to film. And stops going to the drama, stops going to the theatre, and, and and all that kind of thing. Having come from a non-Christian, well, a, a nominally Christian, posh London family, it's obvious to him that becoming a Christian means pulling yourself out of all that world. He he changes that position, but that was that generation. So you have uh, the condemnation of culture. Uh, then you come with Francis Schaeffer uh, to the critiquing of culture. So Fran- who knows who's heard the name Francis Schaeffer? I've heard it from a name. So. Uh, missionary from America goes to Europe to evangelise the kind of hippie trail and the beatniks and then the, and then the hippies and so on. And he does this thing that is remarkable at the time, is that he begins teaching and thinking about culture, critiquing it, and not just high culture, but all culture. So even back in that kind of condemning phase, it was still okay, opera was kind of okay and weirdly kind of um, country and western music was okay, which <laughs> weird if you look at the content of either of those art forms which are kind of, um, it's, it's kind of like you know it's Beyonce like level crazy in there but for some reason I think because it was high culture it threw you off the centre bit um, but um, uh, Francis Schaeffer would uh, would lecture on on, uh, on Christ and the claims of the gospel against the wider culture and would move from, you know, um, from opera to a Jason Pollock painting to a Beatles track to a John Cage and so on. And so that was a really remarkable moment where Christians re-engaged in the critique of culture um, and, uh, and trying to look at it for its worldview. But it probably had within it a, a Trojan horse, and that's not the right metaphor, but it... It, uh, one of the features of that is that culture was something to be uh, critiqued and largely thought of as, as a top-down process, that you have things that you think and then people who think those things cause other people to think those things and then what we do is an expression of what we think. Um, and the situation is probably more complex than that. So the, the iPhone is a great example where we weren't all thinking iPhone it just suddenly emerged on the market in 2007 and has radically changed our world um, as a piece of technology or the, the printing press and so on. So anyway, there's, that's critiquing culture. Um, then in the 70s and 80s, and maybe uh, maybe most people were too young, but there was a phase where Christians were copying culture, and so you would look at what was on the top 40 
and uh, and then you would go back and make a Christian version of that. So there were Christian hair bands and um, Christian um, heavy metal and Christian rap and stuff like that, and it was just kind of slightly sanitised. And by the very nature of the project, it was always going to be a dollar late, a dollar short, a day late. Um, but uh, kind of sanitising the popular culture. Uh, and then uh, Crouch says, I think this is quite pressing, he says, what you see now, especially in evangelicalism, on the whole, is, is just the consumption of culture. So the, the uncritical consuming of cultural artefacts um, in a way that the post-war generation wouldn't recognise, just lapping it up, consuming what everyone else consumes, watching all the same shows and listening uh, to the same stuff. And in some ways, being ahead of the bell curve uh, often as, uh, as evangelicals uh, kind of out-consume and out-participate in, in the culture. And that's an important thing because, um, as I described the 2019 self, um, that kind of expressive individual in the age of work, did you remember that from the earlier, the morning session? Um, when I've talked to people about that before, so I won't embarrass you if it didn't work, but lots of Christians I've talked to at our church and elsewhere will say, oh, you used to describe me. That, that's actually how I think of the world. I, I do think about my... I do feel anxiety. I do agonise over my decisions. I do worry about my the way that I do feel like there's an inner self that's waiting to get out and I need to authentically express myself and so on. And then you ask the question, when did that happen? Because... The follow-up question is, all of us, maybe you accepted, but most people I've talked about that recognise themselves as having been described more or less in that, that uh, person, and yet no one sat you down at school and said, hey kids, uh, it's year three now, you need to learn that this is the West and we're expressive individualists, <laughs> and by the end of the thing I need you to be able to tell me what the age of authenticity is. And, you know, and you say, oh, but miss, I really want to... Um, I really want to participate in the wider society. No, that's wrong. We are about self-expression, not about corporate concern. Like, no one taught us, and yet in many ways that we hold that more deeply than anything that was ever taught to us. That the things that actually drive us are things. So how did that happen? And uh, it happened really here. It happened in a thousand Disney film songs, um, speeches, practices, um, allowing of, of the patterns, the patterns of the world, in the way that Paul uses that term to really to really shape us. So that before we've even thought a thought uh, consciously, we've thought it a million times unconsciously. And uh, so that's the final thing of consuming uh, culture. But what I want to talk to you about is the exciting thing that you get to do, which kind of links back, is to create culture. And that's Andy Crouch's critique: is that um, uh, through all those phases, condemn, critique, consume. Um, there's nowhere in there that people uh, and copy. Uh, there's nowhere in there where we're just thinking that's just take, take seriously our responsibility to create culture. Uh, again, don't mean that many high culture, but I mean creating artifacts um, in, in the world. So I wanted to think about that. I wanted to actually do some Bible teaching. Is that all right? Um, and uh, we'll, we'll think about what the Bible says about creating culture, and then we'll let's land this plane uh, in the time we've got. So for. Acts in the Bible story. Um, this, no, this will be um, surprising to most of us. I don't think. So if you think of Act 1 of the Bible as creation, uh, the Bible opens and uh, the Bible begins and there's only two things in the whole wide world. There's God and there's everything that God's made. 
And so you can do a quick checklist of all reality, and you can ask the question, are you God? Uh, And if the thing or person you're talking to is not God, then you already know what it is. It's something that God has made. Um, Because there's only two two categories uh, in the whole wide world. Um, God creates all things, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But, and this might be something that uh, we didn't always notice, notice verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So think about that. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. It's strange... I wonder if you agree with me that there's almost a kind of fear and foreboding. I'm not sure that's an entirely comfortable verse, verse 2. I get that vibe from darkness, formlessness, emptiness, and I get it as a Bible reader from the deep. Because in the Bible, in a way that's hard to um, comprehend in Australian culture, the, the ocean is a source of fear, it's demonic, it's like where monsters are, it's the unknown other. And so I think Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, formless and empty, the deep and darkness, but the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And interestingly in the Bible, uh, where creativity, maybe in the more narrow sense, uh, so for example, one of the qualifications for being a temple builder or a temple architect is to have the Spirit of God. Go and find someone who's filled with the Spirit of God um, to go and design the uh, paraphernalia in the temple and of course leaders have to have the spirit of God um, because I think part of leadership, part of creativity and creating art and and uh, and products uh, artefacts in, in the world is bringing order out of orderly orderlessness to bring form out of what is formless and notice that's exactly what God does in the first in the six days of creation so you've probably seen this pattern before but days one two and three God separates light from darkness, sky from sea, sea from land. He's making spaces and making them distinct. Sky's up there, sea's down here, uh, land and sea are separated. And then days four, five, and six, he fills those spaces. So he fills the sky with lights, he fills, um, and the moon, he fills the ocean with fish, and he fills, day six, the land with living creatures, a.k.a. he solves the problem of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Because Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, the problem is formless and empty. By day 6, it's formed and filled. So God solves the problem of creation by making the formless formed and by making the empty filled, which I think makes sense for what he says to the humans. So day 6, at one level, Genesis is not very flattering to humans. Anyone know why we're made on day 6? Just, it's the day that land-based animals are made. So it's kind of lame. We don't even get our own day. It's just like God's making other land-based animals out of the dust of the earth, and he makes us out of the dust of the earth on the same day, doing the same stuff, you know, part of that creation. So the, the difference in the humans is not that we are just like, that our biology is so radically different from, from any other mammal or, or whatever. Um, uh, the difference is our commission, which is chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, that they may rule over the fish of the sea, uh, the livestock and all the wild animals, all the creatures that move along the ground. And then verse 28, listen to this, if it rings a bell, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So chapter 1, God makes 
form with its formlessness and fills what is empty. And then the humans are sent out to do the same thing. To rule, to bring order, and to fill the earth and, uh, and rule it. So if you break it down, increase, they're supposed to have babies. Uh, Eden, like the pilot project, and then off they go to conquer the world uh, with the image bearers um, out in the world to fill the earth uh, with those image bearers and then to subdue it, to rule it, to bring um, order out of the chaos. Um, so that's what that's the, the role that humans are given. And I can put it this way, um, even before I've, before I've ever met anyone, um, I already know what your job is. Because I know that your job, so think about what your job is, what your research is, what you teach, what you think. Your job and my job is to bring order out of chaos. And that's it, isn't it? I bet you've got a big data set, and if you go to your supervisor in year three and say, I cannot make any sense of this, they're like, oh, it's been great, but um, there's other work for you. Or, um, sorry, that's a terrifying thing to say. I'm sure you'll find meaning in your data set before too long. But your whole thing is to bring order from it's to It's to nominate order. And here's the thing, if anyone's got kids, you feel like kids are the opposite world that their job is to bring chaos from order when you have kids, because you just look at the house at the end of the day when kids have been in it, but that's only because our project's not their project. So if you go down to the kids' level and look at what they're doing, they're getting the yellow Lego blocks and putting them separate from the red Lego blocks, and they're getting the thing, and same with their food, you think they're playing with their food. No, they're being little image bearers of God with their food, and they're separating peas from mashed potatoes, and and then they're separating stuff by putting it under the table to the dog and stuff like that. But what looks chaotic to us is absolutely Adam and Eve image bearers, just in a way that we find really annoying. Um, now, God sends them out on that mission, and, uh, and notice here that God, as they go to exercise dominion, um, God is not a micromanager of the way they do culture. So, Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, God brought the animals to the man to see what he would name them, and what, whatever the man named the living creature, that was its name. I think it's a remarkable feature of the story, right? That God says, your first job, Adam, is to name the animals, and... God and they come and God doesn't say, yeah, Adam, knock it. do whatever you want, mate. Just whatever you want to call the animals, go for it. Oh, fuck. And then, like, he says, yeah, whatever Adam named it, which I think in there is this principle of, of both discipline and creativity. Like, he goes out there and he can't, he's not supposed to name the trees, he's not supposed to name the, the he's got a finite thing, your job is to name the animals, so he has to be able to distinguish, he can't impose on the world, he's looking for the animals and but whatever he names them, that was its name. That he had a genuine freedom, a genuinely non-micromanaged way of being in the world. Where it, I think that the the, uh, the import of the way it's phrased, whatever he called them, that was its name. God gave Adam a genuine contingency where it could have been Aardvark or it could have been, you know, um, zebra, and that was its name. That he got to actually touch the world, and the world changed as a result of Adam's. Activity that the name, uh, the name stuck. So, uh, God makes us as His image bearers, called to make culture, called to make something of the world, to bring order out of chaos, as a picture of what God is to the universe. So the way I want to put this is to say that we are God's argument for the existence of God. 
Like, we have arguments for the existence of God, teleological and whatever, but God's argument for the existence of God is this room and uh, humans. They're, they're his proof that he exists. We are his, his image uh, in the creation. And notice, this is coming to our uh, specific topic, in the middle of all this, God, God creates the culture-creating creatures and of a creation, a creation of which he said, good, 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 day one, two, three, four, five. Then on day six, when there's a creature that can creatively interact with the creation, he says, that's very good. Good, 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 very good. The way Andy Crouch puts it in his book is, he says this, that if you, uh, God, I guess it would be day three, or day, day three, day four, um, God created uh, grapes, and uh, grape, grapes are good. Grapes are good. Like, they're good. But humans came along and worked out how to put them in a barrel and tread on them and smash them down. And then they went off. And normally if something goes off, you think that's no good. But then they held it for a while. And then, and then like, three years later, they tasted it. And at first it tasted gross, but they said, stick with it. And <laughs> try it again. And then if we bottle it this way and stuff. And humans made wine. And wine is very good. <laughs> or... Uh, on day, I guess it must be day three, day four, God created uh, grass and grain, and grain's good, and grain's really good, and God said it was good. But humans worked out how to smash some of that, the seeds from that grain, and it went white or whatever, and then they got the husk away, and then they put yeast in it, and then just when it was coming out, they smashed it down again, and they put it up, and then they worked out fire and heat, and they put it in the thing, and then it's like that golden thing, and then, sorry if you like, um, <laughs> smash it open and then you put butter on it and then that, that first layer of butter melts and then the second layer of butter and speaking of which speaking of which who worked out the butter thing it's like literally who's the kid that came back and said dad this is going to sound really weird but have you ever tasted the milk of a cow <laughs> don't judge just before you tried it um, but grain is good, but milk, but no milk. Uh, uh, grain is good, but, but bread is very good. And such is God's place uh, for our culture making, for what we make of the world, that he doesn't look at what we make of the world and say, oh, they screwed it up, like I had it really neat, and then they've all gone and mucked around. He's not like a, like a parent like that. He's, he's like, That's, I love what they've done. And I love what they've done in its contingency. It wasn't, I don't think the idea is that grapes were there and we were supposed to guess and took a few thousand years and eventually we were done and said, we've got it, it's wine. Uh, uh, not everyone's worked out wine. And, uh, but but we, that's the thing we did with the world and it's very good that we did. So the Bible uh, then, obviously, Act 2, this is going to go a lot quicker, uh, is the insurrection, uh, the fall, the serpent enters the garden, they reach the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and they're cast out of the garden. The point to notice here is that in the fall, in our rebellion, culture-making doesn't stop, it just becomes difficult. So they're not sent out of the garden as non-culture-makers, having had a culture job in the garden. They're sent from being good culture-makers to bad, or at least mixed, culture-makers. So fruitfulness becomes hard in marriage and in childbirth. Filling the earth becomes hard through violence and murder. And subduing the earth becomes hard as the earth itself resists our care, thorns and thistles, and so on. That, that humans don't cease from their role, but their role now grinds down and becomes mixed. And you see that in the Tower of Babel, chapter 11 of Genesis, 
where, remember the story, so God, they go to build a tower to the heavens so they'll make a name for themselves. And God doesn't say, oh, that's cute, as if they'll get anywhere close. Remember the, uh, the quote, chapter 6, uh, nothing, oh, sorry, verse 6 of chapter 11 of Genesis, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So having been kicked out of the garden, human potency is not reduced, but now able to be directed to bad ends. And so God says in that story, nothing is impossible for them. They can actually pull this off. So the, the, the tower project isn't cancelled on account of its futility, but on account of its potency, uh, such as the uh, ability of human culture creating. Uh, with the story of the Tower of Babel, you might think, if you only had Genesis chapter 11, that the origins of the cultures, uh, of the nations, and of the languages is itself an expression of the fall, which it is in Genesis chapter 11. Um, but before Genesis chapter 11, there's Genesis chapter 10, which is the table of nations. And if you know that chapter, it has these really chipper explanations of the nations. That they're um, the Japhites, the Hamites, the Semites, and they... There's all these guys that um, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, chapter 10, verse 8. I don't know, it just sounds so cool. Like, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord, and I think that means the Lord thought it was great. He's really good at that. Really good, uh, really good hunter. Uh, the Hamites work out how to build great cities, so they're the kind of first urbanists, and there's not a hint of judgment. It's like, oh, cool, they work out cities. That's great. Um, some of them lived in the hill country. Some of them worked out how to be maritime people, which wasn't the Jewish thing. So Jewish people not into the ocean. Uh, but the Bible of the Jewish people celebrates the guys that did work out the ocean thing. And like, good for you. You worked it out. Uh, and we'll leave it with you guys. Um, uh, they work out, you know, and so you ask, which is it? Chapter 11 is the expression of multiple cultures, an expression of judgment, or is it an expression of God's continued purpose in us as culture makers? And the answer, of course, is both. Um, it is both things. Act number three in the Bible is redemption. Um, so Genesis chapter 12, uh, where, remember in Genesis chapter 11, they're making a name for themselves. Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. And the story of the Bible from Genesis chapter 12 becomes the story of God's plan to rescue the world um, through Israel. Which is an important point, because if Israel is God's mechanism through which the world will be saved, Israel has a distinct culture among the cultures. So Israel has a mission statement. Does Sydney University have a mission statement? Unknown. Unknown. What's the last one? Whoa! Wow, which means? The same mind under different skies. The, the mind of Cambridge and Oxford under different skies. Oh, there you go. Wow, that's fantastic. Cool. How come no <laughs> That's cool. Um, uh, Israel had a mission statement, like a, 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 which is Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Remember, they're rescued from Egypt. And God says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here's the question. Firstly, what does a priest do? What's the occupational job of a priest? Yeah, it's an intercession, right? It's to mediate between God and man. So, second question, um, who are Israel mediating for? Because, see, the, the business model is weird, right? If the whole nation is a kingdom of priests, then you, 
where do you sell your wares? Did you go up to that guy and say, hey, did, did you want some mediation between you and God? And no, I'm good, that's what I do as well. <laughs> and then what about you? I also do the same thing. What, my whole family's involved in this. Then there's just like, what is the, it's like everyone's, you know, you've got a product that you can't ship because uh, everyone is that thing. But of course, Israel is to be a kingdom of priests for the nations. So their job is to mediate between God and the nations uh, on behalf of God. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Which I think is why Israel has such a distinctive culture. Because of their occupation as the priestly nation. So you think about, you know, in, in Israel, there's all those uh, food laws, temple laws, family arrangements, there's rules about blood and menstruation, clean and unclean animals, uh, seasonal things. Israel weren't given that rule, that culture, because they were eventually supposed to export that culture to the world. They were given that because priests always have weird rules. Like the whole thing about priesthood is that you are holy, you're separate from the world in order to mediate for the world. And so Israel's culture was never meant to be the world's culture. It was the means by which Israel could be what it was supposed to be for the world. Does that make sense? So Israel's uh, story then becomes the tragic story uh, of how, um, that, to put it this way, the saviour ends up needing saving. Um, those that were commissioned to mediate themselves need a mediator, cast out of the kingdom, uh, sent into exile, returned, promised bigger and better things, uh, which brings us, of course, to Jesus. Because who is Jesus according to the New Testament? He's the son of Abraham, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the son of the promise. He's the son of David, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the son of Adam, Luke chapter 3, the true image of God, uh, the word of God, John chapter 1. So just in the first four Gospels, let alone the rest of it, uh, Jesus is bringing together in himself um, God's purpose for Israel of being um, the light to the nations and the hope of the world. And then Jesus gives his commission uh, in the mandate in Matthew uh, 28 verse 20, which I think is suspiciously similar to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 to 28. Uh, Go into all the world... Uh, baptising the nations into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I've commanded. I think it's hard not to see there another echo of Genesis of going out into the world to bring order from chaos and to fill the world with disciples uh, of Jesus and then bring rule by teaching them to obey um, all that he has commanded. And then finally, the end game, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we see a new creation God's end game, uh, which is not God finishing his plan to share his rule with the creatures, but fulfilling it. So I think a lot of us carry on in our heads a story of the Bible, which is essentially that God had a crack at sharing his rule with the creation, and we screwed it up, and that's why you can't have nice things. And so <laughs> heaven is now plan B, where we're retired from our, our ruling mechanism, from bringing order from chaos, and we just have to sit back and I don't watch him do it or whatever, but we, we ourselves have been retired from that, having screwed it up uh, forever. Uh, and that's not God's plan. God, uh, at the end of, in the book of, Je- in the book of Revelation, says that uh, we will reign forever, uh, meaning the inclusive we of the people who have been uh, saved by the Son will reign forever. And Re- Revelation 21, verse 24, the nations will walk by the light of the Son. And, verse 24, the kings of the earth will bring their splendour 
into it. So weirdly, uh, the end game of our culture creating isn't that we all get together and say, okay, who got it right? Who, what were grapes supposed to be? They were supposed to be wine. You got that right, but you guys worked out that rice was a thing. We, we didn't spot that for ages. And then, you know, and we work out what is the culture that God wanted to bring. Weirdly, no, in Revelation uh, 21-22, the nations, the cultures bring their glory and their splendour into the new creation in its kind of contingency. The stuff that they worked out uh, gets to come in and be part of the thing that brings glory to God. And so the kind of, I don't know, the distinctively sub-Saharan African way of singing praises to Jesus, maybe that gets a guarantee. That's like part of the thing. And maybe the classical tradition, maybe it'd be probably Bach, um, would make a bigger, choose one, and um, uh, the, uh, you know, maybe hip-hop or techno, but like, just the, these things are not a threat to God's purpose because they are expression of our original and redeemed purpose of creating culture, of spotting opportunities for creating uh, order from chaos. I'm going to pause there. I've got seven conclusions. Um, but I'm just going to pause there for questions or comments before we hit that conclusion there again. Yes? So one question. Um, when you spoke about the priests being like distinct in their um, kind of like interesting rule set being like indicative of that, mm. do we see that like before the like... Old Testament version of that, or like I, I just feel like if you use the Bible as the example, then and then later we have priests coming out of it. They use similar things. Um, I don't know what my point is. Like it seems to be a little bit of a circular kind of point. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So well, well why is it inherently a, a, a like a distinctiveness of priests? Why outside of the biblical kind of tradition? Um, why is that? Needed. Yeah, I think it's because the the logic of priestliness and uh, is about restriction of access. So you think of the temple as the holy of holies and the altar, which uh, the altar that's not holy, holy isn't it? The altar and then the court of the priest, court of the gentile, uh, court of the women, court of the gentiles. I think the the logic of it is that that is God's table. That's where God where God's food is presented to him, and that is the most restricted thing. There's only a few meats and grains that are acceptable on that altar that are considered clean for the priest, but not clean for, for God. And then the priests have restrictions that are greater than the restrictions uh, on the, the men and on the women and on the court of the Gentiles. And then outside, the Gentiles um, can kind of eat more or less whatever they want, although there's, there's restrictions on, for example, the blood and so on, which I think, anyway, that's, that's a whole other thing. But um, I think that is the, that's the way it's pictured, is that you've got increasingly restricted access with mediation all the way through, and Israel set as the city on the hill where that mediation is got. The way you can work that is things like, for example, lions are unclean. So, which I think, so you can't serve a lion on the altar but lions are regularly used as a they're a positive animal in the Bible. So Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And 
uh, lines of pictures of strength and so on. So clean and unclean isn't moral, immoral, but it is restricted, unrestricted. And I, so I think that's the, that's the logic that's coming out to their, their priestly role. But is that... Yeah, no, I think that's how thought. It's like, I guess that it, like, it's more the question of, like, no, that like, totally does make sense. I guess the, the issue was like, if we look at priests now and see that they're a bit weird and then you have to justify not exploiting the rules of Old Testament, um, because it's always been a bit strange. I feel like it just gets a bit like, but that's yeah, right. Really, and the, the sequence makes sense. Right. Within the context. Yeah, of now, the other thing, because, yeah, maybe I'm hearing you a bit more clearly now. So, one of the challenges with this is maybe it's post hoc reasoning that that was very hard to export, and so after we said, let's just make it a bit simpler and no circumcision and stuff like that, and let's retrofit this role to them. And I reckon the, my, my confidence that we're not doing that kind of post hoc reasoning is you know, Exodus 19, the, the commission they're given and the way they're given this post that commission, and the relative freedom which with, with, with which Noah is given and Adam and Eve are given, Adam and Eve are given the fruit, and then uh, Adam, uh, Noah can kind of eat anything, and so the the, it doesn't just get more and more chilled, but it actually got stricter and stricter at this point, historically, and as you approach, approach the altar. Yeah. Yes? Uh, you might cover this in your conclusions, but if we've just come, well, come, with a, come to a theology of making culture, what kind of culture should we be making? Is it a, well, is it a necessity to create a counterculture, or is it a, a, a do we fulfill culture? What's the what's the way forward? For yeah, us? great question. So, uh, do you give what we're saying? How do we? Um, what kind of culture should we be creating? Now, one of the one of the ways I think about this is that uh, so Richard Neva has those five stances against culture, of culture, over culture, in paradox with culture, or transforming culture. And I think one of the criticisms, I think it's a valid criticism, is that 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 presupposes a very static understanding of what the culture is. And you push, I think you'll probably push back and say, which aspect of which culture are you talking about? Um, and what, and I think there will be moments, I think that the way I put it is to say, in our engagement with the, the host culture, we mustn't let our stance become our posture. So um, a, a stance is a stance toward a particular artefact or event or thing. And I, I had an experience with this where I've, I've picked up, I've, I'm one of those people that oscillates on exercise, so sometimes I'm like full 70s Elvis, it's just hamburgers and television and stuff. But then I'm, I'm on this health kick at the moment, and so I'm partly like a crossfitter and a vegan, I just wanted to tell you that I am. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, so I do this run behind my house, and so my house is here, and then our kids' school is over there, and then there's this bushland behind it. And the first time I ran, uh, did my little couch to 5K, I was running along, and there were people, these kind of elderly people, walking dogs, and I was like, what the heck, like, the heck, this dog? So there's this huge, scary dog, this little old lady, and the first one is like, just going for me, and I was like, whoa, and like, kind of ran around it, and then the second one, another little old lady, and that was like, cowering, like really feared me and these dogs and then I came around and eventually I worked out that there was a pound behind behind there and so these beautiful old women were volunteering their Sunday morning to walk these dogs whose stance had become their posture so they've been from such abused or like neglected backgrounds that their only way of being in the world was aggressive or fearful and it's entirely appropriate in some situations to be fearful. That's a good response to some things. 
It's an entirely appropriate response. Like your dog, who's got a dog? And your dogs are loved, and so they've got a complete spectrum of emotions, and they know when to be loyal, and they know when to be, you know, that you're beautiful dogs. But they they know when they're guarding and when they're playing and stuff like that. But a, a, a misformed dog uh, only knows how to be one thing in the world, and I think we don't want to be misformed Christians that make our stand. So that I think, for example, when you talk about the condemning phase of Christian culture... Before you condemn the condemners, it's worth noticing what they were condemning. Like, drinking rates in the 19th century were three times the rate they are now. Like, and the amount of devastation the drinking culture brought into homes, what it did especially for women and for children, uh, the condemnation of drinking in that situation was a hugely profound uh, and positive and kind of, uh, wasn't, it definitely wasn't feminist, but it, it, it was, it was but it kicked feminist goals, ironically, of like allowing women to get educated and, and so on, and um, taking away some of the sources of domestic violence and so on. But then I think that stance became a posture. Kind of like, you know when people, you, you, can, you know coders, like you always know people who code because they end up permanently like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's my little end up, not that it stands for posture. And then, oh, I've got one more thing on that. I was going to say this at the end, but I'll say it now. I, um, I reckon you can give these tests that I got from somewhere. Um, as you think about the, what we create, the artefacts we make, um, here are five questions, and see if you can apply this to your research. Um, question one, what does this artefact assume about the way the world is? What is it? What drives it? What, what assumption is it? What does it assume about the way the world is? Um, secondly, what does it assume about the way the world should be? What, what, is it, what is it trying to solve? What is it trying to change? Thirdly, what does it make possible? Fourthly, what does it make impossible or at least more difficult? Um, fifthly, what new culture is created in, in response? And that might be a way, I think it's a helpful way to audit the actual thing that you're working on. So you're writing a thesis, you're... Um, you're getting something ready for industry, you're teaching the unit or whatever. I think they're quite powerful questions. I'm going to say them again and I'm going to apply it to something. Um, so, for example, let's do pornography. Um, what does this artefact assume about the way the world is? So the production of pornography assumes um, certain things about our desire and our, our willingness to have our desire met in ways outside of relationships. What does it assume about the way the world should be? Pornography assumes that, that, that those desires don't necessarily have a, an end or a telos or a proper, proper function and that, that a world where that can be monetized or, or where attention can be drawn through the use of pornography is a world where uh, where, the, where the product will make other products. Think. What does it make possible? It make, pornography makes possible, um, yeah, non-related sexual gratification. Sexual gratification where you don't have to negotiate the otherness of the other, to use a pretentious thing. Because, yeah, part of, the, part of the logic of sexual attraction is that you discover, uh, d- desire draws you towards the other person, uh, but then you discover that the other person is indeed a person uh, who has their own agency, their own hopes and desires and thoughts and wants and um, are not available for you apart from their their genuine personhood. And pornography, I think, part of how it 
what it makes possible in the world is, is the ability to bypass that difficult path toward having to discover the otherness of the other because the people that you meet in pornography are always obliging, they never have a headache or um, they never are needy, they never just want to hug, they never, um, they're never unavailable to you. And so you never, it creates possible a world where you never have to negotiate the genuine existence of the person whom you desire. Um, what does it make impossible? I think it, it makes impossible, or at least a lot more difficult, the opposite. It makes a lot harder for people to, to have the courage and um, patience to negotiate the longer form of the game where you um, know that person in all their authentic differentness to you. Um, and what new culture is created in, in response. Um, yeah, so I think they're the things, and uh, I think they're, they're, they're quite a powerful way of dissecting the, the cultural artefacts that we create. And I think it's a bit more subtle than just saying I've got a secular, which is the human frame thing, to say I've got this secular world where I just shoot stuff and who knows what it is or what it does. I think you can go a bit deeper than that and think what is the thing I'm working on? What does it make possible? What does it make impossible? Um, what does it assume about the world? What does it make, uh, what culture is created in, in response? They're not always easy to predict. I don't, think, I don't think Steve Jobs made the iPhone and that his job was to make parenting more difficult. Um, from the parents' point of view, the kids are fine, but the parents are like, um, uh, so yeah, so it's, very, it's hard to entirely get across that, but I think they're the they're powerful questions to ask. Do you want me to repeat the question? No, we're done. Okay, here's my seven points in conclusion, but they'll be really quick. Seven conclusions um, for our culture making. Uh, firstly, human culture making was always the good plan of God. Human culture make God is the maker of heaven and earth, and therefore creation is good, and God made culture-creating creatures who were genuinely sent out in the world to discover, make, create, form the world, and therefore culture in general, uh, and our culture in particular, can't be intrinsically evil. It can't be, we can't, couldn't have a faithful, permanent posture of againstness um, to the cultural artefacts that we are amongst. Number two, human culture is uh, fallen, uh, no, everything is fallen including culture. Uh, the fall has affected everything, including culture. So just as all things that were created by God are good, it is equally true that the fall has affected everything, including culture. So the effect of the fall is not like Chernobyl, which was terrible but contained. It's much more like Thanos, where everything is affected uh, by what happened in the garden. Um, it's not that the fall affects our mind, but not our hearts, our souls, but not our institutions, our spirituality, but not our physicality. No, the fall has affected everything, including culture. So we should expect, as we deal with culture, to find expressions of sin, hostility, brokenness, and corruption. Number three, the fall has affected everything, but it hasn't totally destroyed everything, including culture. Uh, to put it another way, God did not contain the reach of the fall, it touched everything, but he did contain the destructive power of the fall. It didn't finally destroy everything. And so all over the place, we see what theologians call common grace. We see it in art, and we see it in music, and we see it in research, and we see it in universities. We see it in functional families, 
and good governments and creative technologies and in the advancement of medical science and development work. These are all expressions of God's common grace in which we can rejoice and of which we don't need to say, oh, I wish a Christian had done that. Because it is just an expression of humans doing what God said they would do and a power that he did not withhold from them after the fall. So we can rejoice in it without having to cross our fingers or look sideways or wish the church got credit for it. Number four, Israel's purpose was to win the nations to God, not to make the nations into Israel. Um, Our purpose is not to try to mimic Israel, but to receive the salvation that came to us through Israel. God's purpose was to win the nations as the nations, and God's end game is multicultural rather than monocultural. Number five, nothing is off limits to Jesus, including your work and research. Uh, Contra the imminent framing of our lives, when we say Jesus is Lord, we really do mean Jesus gets to be the boss of everything, including my culture. We don't get to say to Jesus, MC Hammer, late 1990s, you can't touch this. Um, (laughs) Thanks for acknowledging that, you guys who are closer to my age. Um, When we come to Jesus, everything is on the table, all our chips are on him, and we don't get to say to Jesus, but that's a really important part of my culture. And so all the questions of whether we should be watching Game of Thrones or eating so much posh food or living in the area that we've chosen or wearing clothes like the ones that we do are not, in principle, off limits to Jesus. He gets to say something about all of it. Number six, the place in which you were called is a place in which you can live out your calling. The place in which you were called is a place in which you can live out your calling. Get this principle from 1 Corinthians 7. You know, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the gospel comes into Corinth, and some people, uh, of course, because it just comes in suddenly, so some people are already married, they're married to pagans, and uh, some people have already made their decisions about what they're going to do with their life, and they already didn't make any decisions, but they were doing what they were doing with their life. And the big question that comes back from Corinth to Paul is, what have we changed? Do I need to get circumcised? Do I need to somehow get uncircumcised? Um, This is a real question. I'm married to a non-Christian, so I'll do it, so I'll say I'm married to uh, my wife, is still worshipping demons down at the local thing, what does that mean for our sex life and for our children? Like, is there, am I infected by her participation in idolatry? Can you feel the, feel the thing of that? And Paul said, maybe you know that Paul says there, that, that you know, the, the holy, holiness trumps unholiness, that your children are holy and she is sanctified or he is sanctified, that, uh, that you're, you're not infected. But it's part of this wider principle that the situation in which we were called is a situation in which it is possible to live out our calling. Um, There is a way of being a South African Christian, there is a way of being an Indigenous Christian, there is a way of being a Western Christian in a secular context, Uh, there is a way of living faithful to Jesus in whatever sexual orientation or circumstances have been allotted to you. If you're married, you can be a married Christian. If you're single, you can be a single Christian and you don't have to get married to live a life that pleases the Lord. If you're male, you don't need to be female. If you're a Gentile, you don't need to be Jewish. If you're a merchant banker, you don't have to become a social worker. And if you're a social worker, you don't have to become a pastor because the situation in which you are called is a situation in which you can live out your calling. And then finally, number seven, uh, you are here. So think about those four acts. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation, both theologically and situationally, we're here in Act 3 of a four-act story. Which means at least two things. It means 
that we're not here in the garden, that things aren't going to be perfect, things aren't going to work in the way that they did in the garden, there's going to be grind and, uh, and problems in our research and in our teaching and in our work and things aren't going to work out and that will remind us again of the fullness of the world. And we're not here in the new creation uh, where all things are made new and the friction is removed, but neither are we here in that sheer fallen, unredeemed state, that God has sent his son and poured out his spirit and begun his great work of redemption. And so being here means that we live in a, in a tension, but in genuine hope where genuine change and genuine advancement of the gospel can happen in our heart and in our communities and in our societies because God has poured out his spirit and, uh, and forgiven our sins and begun his work of new creation. And I think our time is done. Cool. Yeah, one or two questions, and then... Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Any more questions or comments as we finish? Yeah. Um, in question three, uh, when you were talking about that, I was thinking 23 degrees. Yes. I think that might start a what you might start a conversation about the fruit of the spirit. Yeah, point three would start oh what point three in the four acting or point three in the Sorry, seven conclusions. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah, right, yes. Uh, it's kind of like, okay, now it's to Yeah, okay, so, and yeah, because then you end, end up in that theological challenge of, am I going to, um, I'm now encouraged to declare the goodness of, you know, Nimrod was a mighty hunter and that's, they built great cities and stuff like that. And I also wanted to say that the Spirit of God is operative um, in them and the fruit of the Spirit is there mm. in the absence of salvation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that might be that might be a good reason to keep the filioque clause, which is the uh, so there's a clause that came into the Western Church, but the Eastern Church rejects, which is to say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And even though the way it got into the Creed was super dodgy and they did it the wrong way, I think it's the right theology that that the Spirit is always connected to the Son, to the Son, and not just to the Father. And I think one of the one of the ways in some Trinitarian thought is if you had the if you have Father. Uh, son and spirit and then both operating independently so the spirit is doing stuff I think that does open the way sometimes there's leverage to say um, I can see the spirit at work in all these random pagan cultures and so on and I think actually the 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 son also sends the spirit so the spirit doesn't work independently of the son so I'd want to theologically protect the fruit of the spirit as the gift to the regenerate uh, even though I'm happy with a lowercase j or whatever, how you decide to say, yeah, it's real joy. So, for example, in, um, in Lystra, when Paul preaches in Lystra, um, in Acts chapter 14, he says, he says to them, complete pagans, gospel hasn't made there, probably even Judaism hasn't made it there, they certainly haven't signed up. And he says, God has not left himself without testimony. He gives you rain in its season and fills your hearts with joy. So that's amazing to think that these full pagans are supposed to think part of the evidence for the existence of the God that Paul was talking about is the joy that I felt at my daughter's wedding at the festival last week 
at the at the the bread with the butter put on twice and so on. Um, yes, so that's a good point. Sorry, that went all sorts of crazy directions. But great question. about what's going to happen next. Um, so I'll do that. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that all knowledge finds its fullness in Jesus, and we thank you that we've been able to reflect on what it means for us to be culture makers. We pray that uh, we would, uh, would meditate on the complexity of that and that you would give us wisdom to understand how we might use the fruit of our labours uh, to do what you have uh, commanded us and enabled us to do as we long for Jesus to return and fulfil what he has commanded us to begin. Mm. And, we command, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, so now is a break.